this. Matt, you can unmute now. I'm unmuted. All right, good. Can you hear me? I'm unmuted. Yes. I hear the piano. The piano sounds good, Danny. The piano always sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's good to be here today. It's always good to be here. When I was growing up, my pastor often began the service, you know, I think he always began the service with this line from the Psalms, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's good to be here. It's good to be together. I'm grateful for Zoom, but I love being present. And it's good to see each other. It's good to sing together, to pray together, to worship God together. It is good. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Randalls, and I'm slowly managing to meet most of you. And I was ordained in the Covenant Church about 15 years ago, pastored in Montana, but I'm from here, from Shoreline, actually, and we've been glad to make this our church home the last few years. And um, I thought I'd show this picture of my family to you. Uh, Our kids are out of the house, so you don't see them very often, but there they are, and uh, there we are. We were at a family reunion in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, on, on Meredith's side. Oh, from, I went to the toilet museum in Sheboygan. <laughs> that was the big draw. Man, wow. Good times. <laughs> All right, well, in 1981, a pretty forgettable band called Loverboy. Now, here they are. I sent that picture to Danny. He thought it, I was in the band. No, no, no. <laughs> They came out with a pretty forgettable song, but I remember it, and the song was Working for the Weekend. Do you remember that song? It does not have a profound message. It's just a rock anthem that says, let's have some fun on the weekend. It's about wanting to relax and have a good time after the Monday to Friday, nine to five grind. And yet, it conveys a philosophy. It says that life is a chore to be endured, Life is tedious and exhausting, so you better make the most of your time when you can, because this is as good as things are going to get. And then after the weekend's done and gone, it's going to be time to just do it all over again. When I was growing up, the boy who lived next door to me, uh, when we were about 10 years old, already had the meaning of life figured out. At 10 years old. He'd come up with the answer to the great question that has exercised the minds of philosophers and theologians for centuries. And here's his answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? And remember, he's 10 years old. He says, life is hard, and then you die. Those were his exact words. Pretty bleak. Now, this probably won't come as a shock, but I do not subscribe to that philosophy. If I did, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I'd be working for the weekend, and it's a three-day weekend. I'd be trying to milk every last good moment out of that time. If it's really true that life is hard and then you die, then I'd be doing everything that I could to make my life a little less hard and a little or even a lot more enjoyable. But I am here, and so are you. Why? Why are we here? Why are you? Well, because this life isn't all there is. 
This morning, we're going to jump over into the book of Romans, and we're going to see in a brief passage what Paul has to say about what he thinks this life is all about. And he's going to show us a few things about who we are and what we're living for, and it's not just the weekend. So Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Paul says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You know, if you really want to put someone down, if you really want to make fun of them and what they think, one of the most insulting things you can say is that you think they're being childish, right? No one, no one wants to be considered childish. Even children don't want to be considered childish. In fact, what do children want more than anything else? To grow up. Now, I know about Peter Pan, and I don't want to grow up, and I just want to play with my toys forever. No, they want to stay up late. They want to be able to make their own decisions, make their own choices. They can't wait to be old enough to drive, to be on their own, to be large and in charge. We all want to be independent. We want to call the shots. We want to make decisions for ourselves. We want to be adults. Now, of course, that also means paying the bills, paying the rent, paying the taxes, Dealing with the landlord, the leaky toilets, and everything else that makes being an adult so much fun. All the stuff that makes people just want to work for the weekend. But even Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And he says in Colossians chapter 1 that his hope is that we will all become fully mature in Christ. We're meant to grow up, to mature, to move out of our parents' homes and become a responsible part of society. But even so, none of that changes the fact that no matter how old we get or how mature we are as Christians, we are children of God. Jesus even said, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. And in this passage today, we see this idea that we are God's children tells us a few things about who we are and what this life is about. And in particular, it tells us something about hope. Hope. Hope is all about looking forward to something. It's about looking ahead, looking to the future. It's about something that isn't here yet or hasn't happened yet. Hope is not about the past. It's about the future. Now, what's the opposite of that? Despair. But I think you, and we'll get to that, don't worry. I think, uh, don't despair. It's, it's also nostalgia can be the opposite of hope. You know, looking back to the good old days, reminiscing about how things used to be, and usually with the sense that things aren't as good anymore. Now, I can get pretty nostalgic. I grew up in the 70s and 80s with Knight Rider and MacGyver, and Magnum P.I., 
And recently, I had a weekend to myself, and I rewatched a bunch of those old shows. Yeah, you should leave them in the past. The Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, man. Wow. I thought that was awesome when I was five. When, I was, when my kids were growing up, they would get sick of me pointing out all the things that were gone from my childhood that I was nostalgic about, like the mall and the movie theater and the video arcade where my kids hung out. Now it's a Costco with a giant parking lot. When I was a kid, my family would go to Mariner Games, and we'd go to the Iron Horse restaurant in Pioneer Square where they served you the food came out on train cars. The trains came delivering your burgers and fries. Yeah, it's gone. So is the kingdom. I don't really miss that. There was a huge forest in Shoreline near my home where I used to run around as a kid, and now it's condos. My favorite pizza joint is now a cat veterinarian. Even something as simple as the magnificent tree near my house that all the kids would climb was cut down. I can get nostalgic about all those things and more. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with remembering the good times. But we all know it's possible to take it too far. And when it comes to our faith, it's important, it's crucial to keep our focus in the right place. Our future is not in the past. It's in the future. Our hope looks forward. Christianity is a forward-looking faith. Yes, it's rooted in real historical events. It's rooted in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Real things that really happened. But it nevertheless is forward-looking. Our faith tells us that this life is not all that there is. Our hope isn't summed up by this life here on earth. It's looking forward to what's to come. And this is why Paul says that as children of God, we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Now, what does it mean to be an heir? It means that when someone dies, that their property comes to you. When you're an heir, it means that you're going to inherit something. You have an inheritance coming, but it isn't here yet. Now, plenty of murder mysteries have been written with this in mind. Some rich, old person gets killed, usually at a country estate in England, and then the detective from Scotland Yard shows up to sort through who had the most to gain by the rich old guy's death. Who wanted him dead? Was it his wife? His estranged son? His mistress who'd forged a new will so she could get it all? There's no shortage of these kind of stories. Now, back in the real world, being an heir means having the hope of something good to come. Not that you wish for someone to die, but nevertheless, being an heir is a good thing. When I was growing up, there was a family in our neighborhood that inherited a whole bunch of money, and they moved right out of our neighborhood and into their dream home. Their dream had come true. Lots of people inherit their parents' estates. It's perfectly normal. But there's another kind of inheritance, another kind of being an heir that also occurs, and it's probably not something we think of very often, though maybe we should. So my parents enjoy a bit of genealogical research. And we have documents that trace my family back to the Mayflower. I thought this was pretty cool until I learned that like 10 million Americans can say the same thing. <laughs> we have something even better than that, though. My mother has a family tree that goes back from her immediate family all the way 
to the kings of France. That's right. If all the right people die, I will be king of France. <laughs> My mother does not think much of that family tree. We can't be sure it's entirely accurate. It's probably not. And of course, France isn't a monarchy anymore. And if I recall correctly, some pretty bad things happened to some of their last kings. But even so, can you imagine being heir to the throne? Until Queen Elizabeth died in September, Prince Charles had, over in London, he had been heir to the throne for decades. In fact, at age 73, he was the oldest person in history to ascend to the throne of England, the British throne. But guess what? We are sons and daughters of God. We are heirs to the throne as well. Seriously. This isn't trivia. This isn't a joke. In the book of Revelation, Jesus spoke through the, to the prophet John, and he gave him a message to give to the church, to us. And Jesus declared, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. This is what Jesus says to us. To the one who is victorious. He's talking about the people of the church who endure, who hold fast to their faith, who don't give up. He's talking about us. And he says we will sit with him on his throne. Now, if, if you went over to Buckingham Palace and took the tour, and you jumped over the velvet rope and found King Charles' throne and sat down on it, the only thing you would get is a trip to jail. But when Jesus says we will sit on his throne with him, it's not just a chance for a selfie with the Lord. This isn't trivia. This, is, this means everything. Sitting on his throne means reigning with him. It means sharing in his authority. In that same passage of Revelation, Jesus says, The one who conquers and does my will to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then in 1 Corinthians, Paul even says, Don't you know that we will judge angels? That we will judge angels. Can you imagine sitting on Jesus' throne with him, having authority over the nations, judging angels? These are big promises almost too big to imagine. And this is all part of what Paul is telling us today in this passage. I want to read just a line of it again. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In 1952, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And I love that title. The idea was that all too often our ex expectations aren't too high, they're too low. We don't expect enough from God. We don't think that God is really big enough to really meet our needs or handle our problems. In the same way, we all too often expect too little in this life, and we expect too little from the life to come. God's plan is not to save our souls so that we can enjoy a big heavenly retirement party. The life we look forward to in the life to come will be a full life, not just the after party to this life. You remember the Lion King? And Simba, he, he's all, I can't wait to be king, right? Why? So he can sit around in the lap of luxury and do nothing? Actually, no. He's looking forward to be, being king 
because it means having authority, being able to make the decisions, being able to rule the kingdom. I like how John Piper, a pastor, puts this. He says, in talking about what it will mean to share in Christ's authority, he says this, whatever the specifics are, the implication is that we are being elevated to a status and a role in the coming ages that surpasses our present nature like the ocean surpasses a thimbleful of water. I need to be reminded of this. Do you? Maybe you can get so focused on what's going on here and now, so focused on the everyday annoyances and problems and tragedies of life that you lose sight of the hope we have in Christ. Sometimes this leads to despair. I know too many Christians who are so distraught about the state of our world and all its problems, racism, sexism, corrupt governments, the destruction of our environment, the war in Ukraine, on and on and on and on and on. That it's almost like the hope we have in Christ has been completely overshadowed by the evils of this present age. I get it. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to feel like that. Sometimes the problems we have seem so huge. Sometimes the evils of this world seem so utterly insurmountable. But there's a reason that Paul said the greatest, the three greatest virtues are faith, hope, and love. Of course we need to have faith. Faith in God, faith in Christ. Certainly being a Christian is about believing certain things. And we know we need to love one another and to love God. And Paul says we can have faith to move mountains, but without love it's nothing. But we also need to have hope. And I think this virtue gets neglected the most. We live in a cynical age. Being optimistic or hopeful is looked down on as naive. Believing things will turn out for the best can, can be seen as being gullible or it's wishful thinking. But the hope we have in Christ isn't wishful thinking. It's a hope that can endure even in the face of great suffering. In our passage today, Paul even says that we are heirs if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The hope we have isn't naive. It's not a hope that says we'll never have problems, that we'll never suffer, that, we'll, that things will always work out just fine. No, it's a hope that outweighs the sufferings we endure. This is why earlier in the chapter, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so I'd like to now to finish up with a story. A story that Jesus told about a father and a son and an inheritance. It's the story of how a selfish young man went to his father one day and said, I'd like my inheritance now, thank you. And unbelievably, his father agreed, gave him his share of the estate, and wished him well. And so the son went off into the faraway lands and quickly wasted his inheritance. He indulged in wine, women, and song. And when all was said and done, he had nothing left. He was so bad off that he finally ended up in a crummy job serving up the pig slop. And he was so wretched and hungry that he envied the slop that the pigs were eating. And he was at the bottom of the barrel, the end of his rope. The good times were over and his friends were gone. And that's what happens when the money runs out. His life 
was a failure. And then one day he thought to himself, you know, even my father's slaves are better off than this. I can get out of this cesspool and get a job working for my dad. It's got to be better than this. And so, wretched and ashamed, ready to grovel at his father's feet, he headed home. He had no pride left, no swagger in his stride. This was no longer the arrogant, brash young punk who wanted just what was owed to him. No, he headed home broken and spent, an empty shell of himself, a beggar in his own home. But when he got home, a far different reception than what he'd anticipated was waiting for him. He'd been ready to be greeted with scorn, with shame and condemnation. He was hoping just to be tolerated, hoping he could just get a job and have a roof over his head, a decent meal for his labors. He had no great expectations. And so he said to his father, he had his whole speech prepared, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He disowned himself. He acknowledged how he had treated his father with contempt, how he had selfishly just wanted his share of the, of the possessions, but no part of the family. How he'd wanted to live his life and how he wanted to, he, how he wanted to live his life how he wanted to. And he rightly recognized that he had forsaken his place as his father's son. And this wasn't just a nice speech. This wasn't just a Hollywood non-apology apology. He really and truly had no expectations that he could have no place in the family. But what he wasn't prepared for was the welcome that he received. There was no accusation on his father's face. There was no interrogation about what he'd done with all that money. No recitation of the rumors that had reached his ears about all the parties and the prostitutes. Instead of punishment, there was embrace. You know, the son didn't even get a chance to make his big proposal, to pitch his idea that he could just serve as a hired hand. Instead, his father interrupted him, and he started issuing orders to his servants. He called out, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. Now, can you imagine the stunned look on that son's face? Can you imagine him standing there dumbfounded as the servants wrap the robe around him? Slip the golden ring on his finger as they wash his feet, as they put new sandals on him? Can you imagine what, me, what must have been going through his mind as they led him into the great hall for the feast, as they seat him at the table, as they fill his glass, as his father stands up in front of everyone, all these people who have heard all the things he's done, and he says, this is my son whom I love. This is the heir. And then he says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And this is how God, our Father, welcomes us. Whatever our story, wherever we've been, wherever we come from, we are welcomed as sons and daughters, as heirs to the throne. We are offered all God's blessings now in this life, and we have the hope of a wonderful inheritance to come. And so this is the invitation to us. 
to come into our Father's presence as his children, to call on the name of Jesus and believe, to receive his Holy Spirit, to receive forgiveness and acceptance, all the blessings and privileges of a child, an heir, to find hope, to learn how to follow Jesus in every aspect of life, how to live a life of fullness. We are all prodigals, and we are all welcomed home. The prodigal son didn't have a lot of hope, just desperation. And he was overwhelmed by the love of his father. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you don't have a lot of hope. Maybe you're just trying to survive, just trying to get by, just trying to endure another day. The gospel is about faith and love, and it's also about hope. A hope that says this life isn't all there is, and this is the truth. The problems and struggles and tragedies of this life don't get the last word. They don't. So often, our God is too small. Our gospel is too small. Our hope is too small. Do you not know our sins are forgiven and we are set free? And our hope is not just to go to heaven when we die so we can relax at some endless retirement party. Our hope is that we will reign with Christ. Amen? In a very real sense, this life is truly just preparation for the life to come. In a very real sense, this life isn't even about this life. It's about the life to come. And no one has put this better than C.S. Lewis. And yes, I think I quote him every time. Some of the most profound books are for children. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the rest of the Chronicles of Narnia are no exception. And with the last battle, the last of the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia that tell the, story, uh, the stories of Peter and Edmund and Susie, Susan and Lucy and all the rest of the children from Earth who find their way to Narnia, with that last book, the story of their adventures is complete. The struggles and conflicts are finished, and the end of Narnia, the end of the world, is at hand. And Lewis writes this. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last... They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. He may have been writing about the fictional land of Narnia, but he may as well have been writing of our world and our hope. We are children of God. We are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. As Jesus says, if we overcome, if we are victorious, we will sit on his throne. We will rule over the nations. We will judge angels. These are big promises. And this is what we look forward to. There is so much more to this life than working for the weekend. We have a great hope, an eternal hope. A hope that is bigger than anything life can throw at us. Bigger than any of our problems or struggles. This is the hope we have in Christ, and it is a sure hope. Let's pray. Father God,
we're in awe of you. You are bigger and better than we can imagine. And your word astounds us. These promises are so big. And our hope, we can barely comprehend. Lord, I pray for eyes to see beyond the troubles and struggles of this world. Keep our focus on you, Lord, to see what you are calling us to. Let us not get mired in the struggles and annoyances of this life and this world. But give us eyes to see what you are calling us to. Help us to believe in this hope that you have for us. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.